And joining us next on our two-guest episode, he is a member of the Tri-State Living History Association, Mr. Byron Cookie Vineyard. Byron, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, doing great. Well, I appreciate you joining us. Now, you and I, we are going to have the opportunity to meet in person here coming up in Fredericksburg, Texas at the um, National Museum of the Pacific War on May 25th and 26th for their Living History Weekend. One of the things I like to do anytime I bring a new guest onto the podcast is to get a little background history onto them, what they do for a living, how they got into living history, and then where they're at today with their living history. So let's back up a little bit. Um, what, do you, what do you do in your professional life, and how did you get into living history? Well, I worked mine construction, worked in the coal mine for a few years. And around 1983, I had the opportunity to buy a chimney sweep business off a friend of mine that was didn't he just wasn't cut out for it. So I bought the business sight unseen. And so here we are. I'm in my 35th year in the business, getting ready to... Uh, sell it and, and retire. And uh, as far as the World War II, my oldest son, Lucas, uh, federal police officer, uh, he actually got started when he was in eighth grade. He loved history, especially World War II. And then when he was in the National Guard right around 9-11, uh, was sent to a high security detail in Germany. Long story short, I started ordering some World War II things for him because he was going to join a, a unit when he came back to the States. So that got me interested. So in 2002, I went to a 506 reunion at uh, Decoa, and that's where the Band of Brothers were started. It mm-hmm. was in, in uh, Decoa, Georgia, Currahee Mountain. And so that I really caught the bug then because we were around the Airborne Unit. And that's our first unit was, well, everybody does Easy Company 506. Sure. It, you throw a rock, you're going to hit five units that portrays 506 yep. or an airborne unit. And so um, I was doing the infantry. Well, at that time, I was uh, I would have been around 52 years of age. So I'm out there tripping around with uh, airborne boots, a Garand rifle, steel pot on my head, all the gear. And I'm telling the boys, boys, this is not for me. And so my youngest son, Brandon, who works at the Pacific Museum in Fredericksburg, he said, well, Dad, you love to cook, so why don't you do a cook's impression? Well, here we are 18 years later and several, several thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, put the, I put together probably, and, and I'll pat myself on the back, I probably got one of the most authentic working field kitchens in the United States, well, bar let, none. Well, let's talk about that real quick. Where does one start to go down that rabbit hole to acquire this stuff because obviously like you said everybody and their grandmother when they first get started a lot of the guys do the airborne we all know about you know what price glory about world war ii impressions at the front and all that but how do you go about on this venture to find either reproduction or authentic (laughs) field kitchen stuff because not too many people do it so there's not a high demand for reproduction stuff there 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 isn't don and i'll tell you We'd have to do two or three more podcasts, buddy. I mean, it was hunt and peck. People found out about when I first started, I had very little gear. A lot of it was uh, propane, uh, like you had for a fish fry or a turkey fry. I was using that stuff. We were washing dishes out of Tupperware, um, just odds and ends. And then I just said, no, if we're going to do this, let's do it shoot right. for 100% authenticity. We owe that to the veterans. We owe it to the younger generations. If you're going to, and, and this is where I, I separate a, myself from a lot of reenactors, if people are going to do this, 
why are you doing it? Are you doing it to impress somebody? Are you doing it because uh, your friends are doing it? Are you doing it because you have a deep burning passion to keep the history alive for our World War II vets? Because in a few years, Don, you're not going to see a World War II vet. I understand. And it's up to us to keep their stories that we've collected over the years, to keep their memory and as much original gear working as we can to pass that on to future generations or it'll be lost. We, we've got a, a large responsibility on our shoulders. And when that last veteran's gone, it'll really be a, a, a responsibility to tell the story at the most accurate possible way we can with our impression of a field kitchen. Well, and not only the field kitchen, but everything in general. But and everything, everything. You know, I never. We strive. I, I never made this equation before, and as you're you're talking, which was very well said, um, and I know you'll understand what I'm about to say. Um, I remember when we were in school, and they were talking about how rumors would spread, and and the way they would demonstrate that was we'd play the telephone game. One person was told a fact. He'd whisper it in a person's ear yeah. next to him and around the classroom. And by the time the last person got it, the fact was completely distorted. Well, we're kind of doing right. the same thing in living history. We're reading books. We're getting facts from veterans. They're told to me. I tell it on a weekend. Some Another living hist- historian hears it. He tells it. We have got to try to keep that authentic so that when the fifth hundredth person tells it, the fact's still there. We, we we need to make sure we're not playing a giant history version of the telephone game where everything gets distorted. Well, and that's true. And and uh, I've gotten in uh, some pretty good arguments with uh, other reenactors because, and, and reenactors can take this for what it's worth, and I'm going to say it because this is my passion and I live for the, uh, for the field kitchen is, if you're going to do it, you strive for a hundred percent. And we know because we, we call ourselves living historians. And the reason I say living historians, instead of using the word reenactor, a reenactor to some degree, and it's a, a, a large group of them will only take their impression only so far. And that's where it stops. They don't do research every day. Like we do. They only live from one reenactment to another one where we live at 365 days a year. We're constantly researching photos, manuals, videos from World War II. Uh, we talk to the veterans that were cooks in World War II. Uh, we get their pictures, their stories. We read anything that we can get on the mess halls and the supplies for the food. And we make our own labels. We make our a lot of the stuff we we make ourselves. And so to me, we strive for a hundred percent knowing that we never probably will get to an exact hundred percent, but we're always striving because when you stop striving for a hundred percent, you start going backwards in your impression. In other words, you'll show up at an event. Oh, well, I forgot this. Well, that's okay. Well, I don't have the right thread for my buttons. Well, who's going to notice the thread? We do. We get the right thread to sew our buttons on our uniform. That's why they call you a stitch Nazi. And to me, when you're called a stitch Nazi, I take that as a compliment because that means I'm still striving for 100%. 
and I'm at probably 92, 93%, where a lot of reenactors will stop at 70%. When I started in around 2002, 2003, nobody was doing the field kitchen impression. Nobody. I think the biggest and photo so, I had ever seen of one is uh, that comes out of the D-Day reenactment up in Ohio. I've only seen photos. That's the only place I've really seen one erected anywhere. Yeah, there's a couple out there that's good. Mine is when I found the gear, none of it worked, and there was nobody to show me how to repair it. There was nobody to show me how to restore it, so I start reading on how to do sandblasting. So I've got my own sandblaster and soda blaster. So then I find I go to body shops and find out what's the best thing to remove rust or repair this. Uh, and I'm a welder, so I've welded a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm a painting a pro. I've got my own uh, big compressor and spray guns, and uh, so our, pa- our paints are g- good reproduction paints for that era. When you media blast that, are you using walnut or using cork? I mean, because obviously some of that media is a little too rough on it, and you don't want to create more yeah. holes than you already cork, have. Uh, a walnut shell under the right pressure, I always test a little area. Uh, it's kind of out of sight before I go full tilt and I set my pressure gauges, you know, but I use that. And then on like, cause I restore uh, helmet liners. I put in a new webbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can paint and cork a helmet just like a professional. Um, Josh Murray, Jay Murray. Yep. We've had uh, him on the show. Does. Okay. Jay Murray, buddy, that man, he is my go-to guy. Uh, I feed Josh out of my field kitchen when he's at Rockford, Illinois for the big battle weekend in September up in Rockford. We became real good friends. Oh God, years and years ago. And he couldn't leave his, uh, uh, space because a lot of times he was by himself. So after my troops ate, I would always take a mess kit loaded down with food and a big thing of coffee and take over to him. I say, well, when you get done, just clean the mess kit and bring it back over after everybody's gone tonight. And then I'll bring it back over for breakfast. So, sure. so he never had to. So he's always uh, helped me because he knows that I'm doing it just for our guys. And, you know, I don't do anything for resale. If I'm doing a helmet liner, it's for one of our new guys or for myself. Cause I've got two or three helmets, different impressions and stuff. So I can do, I can redo helmets, you know, and stuff that I've just taught it's self-taught on, on restoring the field kitchen gear. And as far as finding it, Don, Oh my God, I don't pass up a flea market. I don't pass up an antique mall. Uh, somebody will call and say, man, so-and-so said that they saw something out in the barn. It looks like a mermite or a mermite wow. insert or a pot or something. And I've had people actually buy stuff at an antique mall up North and they come back down home and they'll say, Hey, Byron, we found this, and uh, you can have it at cost, you know, sure. whatever it is. Go and look at it. If you can use it, I'll make sure it's war dated. And I'll say, yeah, I can use that. And so I've gotten, I've had stuff given, I've had stuff given to me. People said, we just want, we know that you'll keep it, you'll appreciate it, and you'll take care of it for the rest of your life. So we want you to have it because we know it's got a good home. <laughs> In your experience, have you, resulted into shipping stuff back from overseas because a lot of it was left there? No, a few things like maybe pamphlets, small items that were shipped fairly inexpensive. 
if you go for the big stuff like a war dated immersion heater, it would cost you mm-hmm. an arm and a leg and a stove, an M30, an M1937 range stove with burner and pots and pans. I wouldn't even want to venture on what that would cost to get it back to the States. And it's probably going to be painted green, which means it has to be, if you're going to be authentic, all of that paint has to come off. And it had a hardening agent for heat resistant. And I stripped, I've stripped four of them with sandblasters and it like to kill me. I mean, it wow. takes a lot of work to get that green paint off of a uh, 37 rain stove. It's work. I can it imagine. It's work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when, it, when it comes to, let's say somebody wants to try to get into the field kitchen, um, if you're just trying to get the basics down, what are the key components that you need just for the smallest, you know, smallest defined field kitchen to feed just, you know, a platoon or whatever, just if somebody's trying to just to get one started for their group. Well, I would say you could start out like I did with stuff that, that isn't from that era, but, but always be out there hunting, going on different websites on their, uh, where you can post a question or say, Hey, I'm looking for a mermite, uh, eBay, but see, I bought a lot of my stuff. I was lucky. I found a lot of stuff at antique malls back in uh, 2004, 5, 6, and 7 because nobody was buying it. Nobody knew what the real cost was. So I was picking up a Mermite like for $50. Well, now a good Mermite in good shape will bring 275 to $350. And if you throw in the inserts, those inserts now can bring as much as 60 or $65 for an insert, and I was paying 25 for an insert. Now, for those of you listening who aren't familiar with what a mermite is exactly it's kind of like a large uh stubby thermos if you will um you know a heavy round thermos that's exactly it that's exactly it and when it's you, a big thermos and when you say insert they basically have like a stainless steel pot with a lid that you could fit what two or three of them per mermite most of them were aluminum some of them were tin um they were uh a lid with three clips on the side. The clips held the lid on, and there were three in a mermite. Now, in the war, uh, they used them for two, one for food and then one in the field hospitals for plasma. Huh. And you could, tell a me- you could tell a medical mermite because the lid was painted white and it had about a two-inch white band at the base. And, buddy, if it was painted white, they better never, ever catch a cook using it because yeah. you could just about be shot because that was for plasma and plasma and medical personnel only. If it was solid green, a lot of times they had their uh, uh, division on there or the battalion numbers or whatever was stenciled on it so they knew what unit that mermite belonged to. The cooks, what they would do is uh, they would fill them from the water in their garbage cans from the immersion heaters, they would put hot water in them, let those get hot, and then they would put the inserts in hot water and let them get hot. Then they would put the steaming hot food in there, lock them down, put them in a mermite, and ship them to wherever they were going to ship and feed the troops. And that's how they kept the food hot. Now, we use ours a few times in the field for taking food out to the boys on the front line in the foxholes, but mostly we use them for cold storage. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we'll take two of those inserts, put water in it and freeze it. 
and then we'll put food in one and sandwich it between the ice blocks. And hell, I keep food cold for four or five days. Nice. Now, I assume with the technology of the time that the primary source of insulation is is probably asbestos? I think it was some type of... I found one at a an Army Depot down in um, Knoxville, Kentucky, at an old Army Depot. And I first thought, man, this is a fine. Well, I turned it around, and it had been left out in the rain, and one whole side was rusted out. And it looked like a fiberglass, a white-spun fiberglass is what it looked like. But what happened, we're losing the insulation property because what happens over the years, that breaks down, and it falls and settles towards the bottom. So your bottom is well insulated, but the upper part and the lid, Uh, the insulation is starting to deteriorate. So it doesn't have the same insulation property it did back in uh, during the war in the forties. And there's probably really no way to fix that without compromising the casing on the mermaid itself. Well, I've done one and I, I, made a mess of it i what i was using was a foam and it didn't get all the way down in there and i had air pockets what i did is i drilled a hole in the bottom turned it upside down drilled a hole got a sawzall blade started and i just cut out a nice circle then you'll see the insulation well i pushed it all the way down to the top of the insert and now if i do another one i'm going to use a good r factor insulation and I'll just pack it as tight as I can. Then I'll put the uh, base back in there, pack weld it, and then I'll weld it back in, and then I'll grind it back smooth so it'll be hard to tell that I've compromised it. Plus, the bottom's on the ground anyway. You're never going to see the base, the underneath side of a mermite. Well, let me ask you this. Since obviously no one's going to see the inside, wouldn't a decent solution to fill in the air pockets uh, use an expanding foam? Well, that's what I did Okay. the first time. And I even tried to use a nozzle to squirt the foam. Well, that foam expands so mm-hmm. fast, and you create little air pockets, so you don't have 100% packed insulation. I so uh, I, that first one I did, I thought, Matt, this is not the way to go. So now I'm thinking this summer or in the fall, I'm going to go back and do another one, one of my older ones that's kind of beat up, and I'm going to cut the bottom out, and I'll get an, I'll do some research and find out the best insulation that I can put in there and I'll pack it tight then put the lid back on and uh, pack her back in there. Let's talk menu options because we know a lot of people think the field kitchens is nothing more than shit on shingles and some black coffee but uh, people would be surprised what all you can cook in that field stove because I was looking at your website and I was looking at a a video that you posted and a few of the links and one of those links included um some copies from the original field manual of what all can be cooked in those things and i think people would be surprised what luxury items a oh, yeah. um, a well um let's say skilled uh cookie who had uh you know access to some decent ingredients could come up with oh yeah the the cooks in world war ii they were they were uh, a character all in their own of course, you had the, the, the K rations, you know, you ate out of a box, mm-hmm. and those always came to the troops. Then you had the 5 and one and the 10 and one pretty straightforward. Uh, then you had other stuff shipped from the States, uh, stews. Uh, a lot of it was dehydrated in powder form or dehydrated potatoes, meats, 
your chip beef was dehydrated. Uh, so you had just a, a hodgepodge of stuff coming from the States. But if a cook could land himself with some fresh beef from a village, uh, eggs, uh, flour from a flour mill, uh, if he could get his hands on it, he fixed it for the troops. Fresh uh, produce, vegetables, fruits. He was always looking for something out of the ordinary, and that just boosted the morale of the men in his company. Okay, so they were always looking for different ways and, and scrounging for different things that they could fix. But in 37, uh, 1937 stove like mine, you can do, you can cook anything in the field that you can cook in your house, barring any refrigeration. Now we have refrigeration because we use the mermites. So, but I stick with the World War II cookbook. I've got a hardback copy that the cooks used when they went to cook school. Then you have the little manual, the field manual, paperback, but it's got all the recipes. It's just condensed. So anything I cook in the field for my men comes out of a World War II cookbook. Now, um, when it comes to you and when you guys are doing your reenactments and you know, living history events, obviously you kind of condense your menu options because one, you got to buy all the stuff. Two, you got to pack it across state lines, and three, yeah. um, you're trying to keep it simple, stupid. So, what is your go-to menu items for, let's just say, a Saturday and Sunday event? Uh, well, we do. Uh... I always get, like I was talking earlier, I buy uh, eggs from a farmer, but I don't have him clean them. And this is what a lot of people don't know. If you don't wash an egg uh, right out of the nest, the chicken nest, you can put it in a crate, a box, pat it, and that egg will stay good for up to three weeks. As long as you don't put it out in real hot sun or in sunlight, we always cover, keep them underneath our mess fly or keep them in a tent. Uh, to where sunlight doesn't hit them, and we've used eggs four and five days in the field, and we don't clean them until we're just ready to uh, use them for whatever baking. Uh, so one of my go-to things in the morning is we'll do uh, we'll make up biscuit dough, we'll bake biscuits, big pot of SOS, big pot of coffee, uh, and scrambled eggs. You were telling me before you came on that uh, right now, because you're preparing for the, uh, next weekend. You currently have 24 dozen of these eggs sitting in your house. Yeah. I'm just yeah. trying to picture where one keeps 24 dozen fresh, unwashed eggs. Now, answer me this. I, I've been getting into a show called Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix, and Phil Rosenthal, he's the head writer. He created the show Everyone Loves Raymond. And he's a big foodie, yeah. and he travels all around the world. And he eats all this immaculate food. And the thing I started to notice at all these high-end restaurants, all the eggs were brown. Um, Is there a difference between the white eggs I buy at my grocery store and brown, quote-unquote, farm-fresh eggs? Or is that just because the uh, chicken farms that distribute to the, you know, the... the Yeah, I'll tell you... Don, I, I couldn't give you a professional answer, but almost all my eggs are brown. I don't know if that's because of their diet and because they're allowed to scratch around out there in the uh, chicken yard or just what, but almost now I've gotten some white. I mean, it might be the breed of chicken. There's a chicken that lays a pastel egg. Huh. 
I've got one farmer that I get eggs from, and one egg will be a light blue, one will be a light pink, one will be a light yellow, and then a white. It looks like uh, Easter time. That's insane. You know? So it just depends on the breed of chicken. But I'll tell you, I've been cooking since I was I'm 69, and I've been cooking since I was three years old. And if you're going to be serious about baking or cooking, buddy, you don't be a, a fresh country egg uh, cookies, cakes, pies, any restaurant, any recipe that calls for an egg. If it's not farm fresh, I don't use it. I won't bake until I get a farm fresh egg. Those things in the store, I call them artificial eggs. Yeah, because I was just wondering, like, why why are they all well, why are all the eggs I buy white? But you know, I think you probably hit on it when it comes to the diet. Um, yeah, it is, it is, and and they're allowed to get out there and scratch around and eat bugs and everything else. And a yolk, a store bought yolk is kind of a pale yellow, a, a, an anemic yellow. And my yolks are almost blood orange, and that is a fresh egg. And you can taste the difference in my biscuits. You can take the difference in my cornbread muffins because I bake. Uh, I've got twelve uh, war dated muffin tins, and I break. I bake uh, cornbread muffins uh, from that. If you're down there that weekend in Texas, oh, you'll I'm taste there. my cornbread muffins. Well, it's interesting and you say that. Food, because I noticed that on that show as well, whenever they were poaching these eggs or they'd make hard-boiled eggs, that yes, the yolk looks like it was an orange color. And instinctively, yeah. if you've never seen that, you must think, is that egg bad? Yeah. But clearly it's not bad. It's the opposite oh. of bad. It's super, it's like organic as it's you can possibly best, get. It's the best organic egg known to man. Yeah. The, the chickens don't get hormone shots. They don't get this. They don't get stuff put in their feed. They eat cracked corn, uh, some supplements that they need for their diet, uh, oyster shells for their crawl. That helps produce a good, thick uh, shell because some of those ones in the store, you just breathe on them and the egg will crack. Mm-hmm. My eggs, I, I'm, I'm pretty hard on my eggs, and I've never cracked one by accident. Nice. Well, I want to transition away from the field kitchen here a little bit because, once again, earlier today when I was talking to you off the air, um, you're telling me about something cool that the Tri-State Living History Association is doing. And you brought up a little piece of history that I wasn't aware of. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but you guys are actually kind of working on a, a cool little project to bring the light to the contribution, if you will, of the everyday jackass to World War II. Yeah, the pack mules. Yeah, yes, yeah. So give me a little insight It'll on that. Probably be- well, it'll probably be next year because our main impression right now is the 34th Infantry, uh, 34th Infantry Division, the Red Bull. Mm-hmm. If you've seen the patch with yep. the, the skull of a bull and it's red, okay, that's 34th. They also fought with the Japanese-American units uh, in Italy uh, all the way from the tip all the way through Italy, all the way up. And they, they those boys were experts at pack meals uh i've got a picture somewhere in my archives of a recordless rifle mounted on top of a mule the rifle is almost as long as the mule is wow and plus the recordless rifle he that mule was carrying about four or five rounds of ammunition for the recordless rifle three on each side plus the recordless rifle i've seen mortars 
I've even seen an immersion heater that was broken down huh. for heating hot water in the garbage can. Sure. They were taking it up to set up a field kitchen somewhere uh, where they couldn't get a Jeep or a truck, and I've seen the gas tank and part of an immersion heater. Uh, the stoves, uh, the food, the ammunition, mortars, uh, 30 cal, 50 cal, you name it, the pack mule carried it in, for the 34th. Yeah, because when people think World War II and they think uh, work animal, they think the Germans. Yeah, yeah. But once again, when you're in Italy or you're in rough terrain up in the mountains or, you know, once again, yeah. places where a Jeep, a Harley or, you know, anything else can't get, you got to you got to go back to your roots. You got to go back to what to what works. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't use the the Americans supplied some mules. But where we got our mules uh, was when uh, Italy surrendered the Alpini soldiers, the Italian mountain soldiers. They used pack mules. So we got a lot of their mules. Anytime we captured German positions, we used their horses. Or if they had mules, we used them, plus the American mules. So well, there was a hodgepodge of uh, mules, and they put the saw bucks on them. And the key thing on pack mules is you had to balance the weight. You had to put the, the saw bucks on correctly with all the strapping. So if you were going downhill, the, the pack wouldn't slide forward on the neck. If you were going uphill, it wouldn't slide off his butt. <laughs> so it, there, there's an art to packing a mule. And that's what we're going to learn from this lady out in uh, Pennsylvania between now and next October. And that's when we're trying to shoot for a date and going out and spending a week uh, packing, lashing, going out in the field, digging the foxholes. We'll set the field kitchen up in the rear. And we'll bring the mules in and we'll load the mermites with hot food and coffee because what they would do, they would send coffee in a in a mermite. They would just take the inserts out and fill it with five gallons of coffee. So anything the boys eat in the field hot will be shipped to them on the mules. And we're going to videotape it. It'll be on our website. Uh, it'll be after October, but we'll edit the, the film just like our field kitchen video and people will actually learn what was involved in packing gear in and out. Plus, the mules would carry out uh, the wounded or the dead. They would put them in a bag, put the body across the mules, and the mules would carry out the wounded or the dead out of battle. Sure. And that website, for those of you listening, especially anyone who lives in the uh, tri-state region over there, Illinois, Missouri, Kentucky, um, and you want to find more information, go to TSIHA.org. Now, that sounds like a lot to remember, but it's very simple. It's the first initial of every word of Tri-State Living History Association. So TSIHA.org. Um, as Baron just alluded to, they do have a great uh, set of videos on there. they got some great content on their website. They have uh, links to their Facebook page, their Instagram page. And you just recently, when I became aware of you, uh, your son sent me a video you guys had just posted. I don't know. I think at the time it was maybe two or three weeks ago. But you are telling me today that that video has gotten wind. It's caught fire. And the views on this thing <laughs> yeah. is blowing up. And you're kind of scratching your head like, what's going on? But obviously that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um... I think right now I haven't checked it today, but 
the last time I checked YouTube, because it's out there on YouTube also, if somebody can't remember our, our, our website, if you just went to YouTube and typed in World War II Army Field Kitchen, you'll scroll down and then you'll see our logo, which is a triangle. And then that triangle is the Bible, a cross, and a helmet. And it'll say Tri-State Living History Association. You click on that video and the Army Field Kitchen, will, my, my field kitchen will be in the video. There's a few Germans and a couple other ones, but the Tri-State will be, you'll see the logo uh, on YouTube. And that's where we noticed that right now I think we're, well, when I was out in D.C., I came back last Thursday uh, we were at 330,000 views and I, it's probably up since then. That's amazing. Congratulations on yeah, that. Yeah. Because, because a month or so ago we were in the low thousands. I don't even know where we'd hit a thousand or maybe two or 3000, something like that. And it seems like within the last few weeks, man, it's, it's gone up to 330,000 something. Now you guys got to shoot more videos. You got to get, got to catch that wave while you're riding high. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to do um, short videos. I'll show. I'll break down the M30, uh, M37 uh, rain stove. I'll show how because we a lot of guys, and this is where I fight with a lot of reenactors. They'll take an M37 rain stove, a piece of history. They will drill a hole in the back, and a guy that used to call himself uh, something cook something years ago, he did a video and showed how showed everybody how to take a burner, strip all that beautiful craftsmanship off the burner except for the pod where your flame is, put a orifice in the front, hook it up to a rubber hose, and on the back of your rain stove out of sight in a wooden crate would be a damn propane tank. Ugh. And they're cooking with propane. They said, man, look at my kitchen. Well, I, I, I ran one guy out of my kitchen about eight years ago. <laughs> Because he was telling me how he cooked with propane, and I said, "You get the hell out of my kitchen right now! Don't, I don't want to ever see you again." Because you just demolished a piece of history, and you don't have the gumption to learn how to use it safely. Well, it's that gasoline wasn't safe. No, it was safe, son. If you keep your gear operational and clean, and you learn how to operate it like the army tells you to. You don't have a problem. Same way with the immersion heaters. Oh, they blow up. Yeah, they'll blow up if you don't take care of them. And if you're grab-assing or talking to somebody while you're lighting one, yeah, it'll it'll bite you. And, so and I know why, because I've been bitten a couple of times by them immersion heaters. I've lost my eyebrows. I've lost a hair on my arm. I burnt my nose. And it was because I didn't have my mind on what I was doing. And so, for those who didn't catch that, um, the original field equipment <laughs> ran off of gasoline. This isn't Hank Hill. This isn't, this isn't propane and propane accessories. This is good old no. American gasoline, or fuel, if you will. Yes, yes. I don't get very good gas mileage in a weekend, on a big weekend, where we've got a lot of mouths to feed. I do a lot of baking, and plus I've got four immersion heaters all war-dated in the old garbage cans, uh, I'll go through 20 to 25 gallons of gasoline and I wow. get zero miles to the gallon. None of my stuff moves from yep. Wednesday till Sunday, <laughs> but I go through 25 gallons of gasoline. You're making <laughs> Al Gore cry. 
Speaking of which, <laughs> do you actually use original trash cans, or you go out and buy you know modern day trash cans for your immersion heaters? No, you can. That's what I was getting ready to tell you. You can't use a modern can because they're tapered and they're thin, galvanized, and they just can't support the weight of an immersion heater. Plus, you won't get it down in there. The base, what we call the donut, won't fit. So we have actually found. Cans, the forestry department, if somebody is around, somebody that run the old state parks, federal parks, uh, uh, forestry departments had them, but you'll, they're straight from top to bottom. And there was a company in Cincinnati, Ohio, I can't think of the name right now. Their name will be stenciled in the bottom as well as the lid. But there was a big, heavy steel ring riveted around the bottom and around the top and that will support the weight because you have to clamp that immersion heater on the top because that holds your saddle for your uh, fuel tank as well as your stove pipe your vent pipe so it it holds a lot of weight so you can't use anything like from an ace hardware store or tractor supply they don't work they don't work and that just goes to show the amount of passion that you have for this particular uh, realm of World War II because not only no one's making reproduction kitchen equipment, at least nothing worth buying, but no one's making reproduction trash cans. And so not only are you trying to find <laughs> no. field kitchens no. and you know uh, war-dated muffin tins, but you're scouring all of God's yeah. green earth trying to find 75-year-old trash cans. They yeah. haven't been shot full the of guys make, The guys make fun of me. They said Cookie's the only guy we know that can go into a, uh antique mall, and the first thing you know is he tips his head back and smells because he can smell that stuff. Yep. You know? And I can tell walking into a mall if they're going to have anything good or not within the first aisle I go down. I can say, well, I'm, I'm wasting my time here. Really? Oh, yeah. I can, I, I can spot a muffin tin across an antique mall, uh, a, a, a milk pitcher, uh, you know, uh, whether it's from a mess hall or the aluminum ones were used in the field, the porcelain ones and the stainless steel ones were used in mess halls. You're so passionate you're, about this that before we started, going back to the eggs, I know, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a lot of hot egg talk on this episode, but going back to the eggs, you <laughs> actually have the authentic wooden egg crates. You're not showing up in the, you know, the... Dozen styrofoam well, jumbo now, eggs from from Kroger. See that regional stuff. Yeah. I said Kroger. <laughs> you, well, we're working right now. A friend of mine. I think it came from Europe. I'm not sure. He's going to reproduce it because we. I uh, think he's getting a uh, found a vendor for the cardboard. We're going to use the template because uh, we shipped fresh eggs from the United States to Europe. We've got proof of that. But in the field, most of your eggs were a powdered egg. Okay. Okay. We just use, we just use fresh because we haven't found a good powdered egg substitute. I've used one. We've used the liquid eggs in a bag. We didn't. They were they were okay. But now my egg crates are from that era. They would have been nineteen and forty. And the reason people say, well, that's not. Army issue, no, 
But who's to say I didn't go to a farmhouse in France and rob a farmer of his egg crate and all these fresh eggs? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure if you talked to a World War II vet, they'd probably tell you, trust me, there was no good substitute for eggs either with the powdered stuff. Right. Uh, I've, I've got a picture somewhere of a, uh, an infantryman in a uh, chicken house, a coop, a chicken coop, and he's put, he's got some straw in his helmet, mm-hmm. and he's cramming every egg he can find down inside that helmet because you know where those eggs are going. He's yep. going to cook those eggs in his helmet. Yes, sir. He'll take his liner out. He'll build a small fire, and he'll have scrambled eggs over, you know, or they'll put them in the bottom part of a mess kit and cook it over a low fire, and they'll they'll fry eggs. Yeah, those, yeah, the, yeah. But to get back to why we do it is because everybody here knows a 50 cal machine gun, a mortar, a BAR, a 45, the helmet, the web gear. And everybody said that comes into my field kitchen, the public that comes to the museums, the veterans home. I go to veterans hospitals and set up for an anniversary of the veteran or VA hospitals. And they'll say, well, we never knew this aspect of the war. And I said, this was a big part of the war mm-hmm. because everybody it, eats. It not only it, it, it kept our troops nourished. We had the best fed army in the world. Well, we still do. Yep. But the morale, if you it late at night and it was cold or snowing and just miserable, and you've been fighting all day, and if you could sit down, and I've had veterans tell me this, we would kill for a hot cup of fresh coffee and a piece of fresh baked bread. That's all you need. They would, they would, and a cigarette afterwards. That sure. that was, and they they got a fifteen or twenty or a thirty minute break from the war. They said it was just almost like being shipped back home for thirty minutes. Well, Byron, I want to thank and you for your t- time. His name is Byron Cookie Vineyard. He's from the Tri-State Living History Association, and I'm so looking forward to meet you in person and. Um, when I'm out there in Texas, we will uh, do a little follow-up interview. I'm so looking forward to seeing you out there. And kudos to you and your guys from driving from uh, Illinois out to Texas to do this. Um, I can't wait to meet you guys there. It's going to be a great weekend, and I'm looking forward to making some new friends. Baron, thank you for everything you do, sir, and uh, thank you for your time. Uh, you're welcome, and you will eat good out of my field kitchen. I promise you that. I'm looking forward to it, sir. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a good evening. Bye-bye.